Welcome back to the Open Source Startup Podcast. This is Tim at SNSBC and our lovely co-host, Robbie from Cowboy Ventures. We're super excited to have Varun, founder of Codium, which is a modern coding superpower. So welcome, Varun. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. We're super, super excited to have you on. And there's a bit of an interesting founding story here. So we'd love to dig through that. So maybe start with what is Codium? Where did the idea come from? And how did it come out of your previous company, Exafunction? Yeah, so maybe a, a little bit of a backstory. Before starting Exafunction, I worked at this company called Neuro. They do autonomous goods delivery. So as you can imagine, AV workloads are massive deep learning workloads. So there, I sort of led a team to run large-scale offline deep learning infrastructure. So the idea, like just to break it up, is before you can ship software onto a car, you need to test it at massive scale. You don't want these things like, you know, behaving incorrectly in front of like a pedestrian. So you would simulate large scenarios, like thousands, millions of miles, basically, uh, offline. And I guess from there, I and my co-founder both realized that deep learning was going to be like a massive workload. And that was just like the beginning of what it was going to look like. So from there, we started Exafunction mainly to optimize deep learning workloads. We realized that GPUs were fairly hard to program for many reasons and quite annoying to, to deal with. So we built a platform to virtualize GPU computations and make GPUs, like inference workloads, really efficient at scale. Exafunction was more of an infra layer, right? I, I remember you were building like a way to abstract away the GPUs so you can actually have like another layer for folks. But... It was more like a tooling infra, but now Codium is definitely for more normal people like us to just write code faster, right? So like, yeah. where okay, did yeah, that yeah. jump so even come from? Basically from there, we we actually ended up serving some of the largest deep learning workloads right off the bat. We started serving extremely large autonomous vehicle companies directly and started managing upwards of 10,000 sort of GPU accelerators in the public cloud. At some point, we were managing more than 20% of GCP's GPU inference workloads like all their GPUs we were, we were sort of managing. And basically sometime middle of last year, we realized generative AI was going to be the largest deep learning workload, like by far. Despite the fact that I guess, you know, robotics was going to be large, generative AI was going to change the way machine learning happens within a company. Instead of having many, many machine learning engineers inside a company and people that train fine-tuned BERT models, you're just going to have people that use these generative models that can solve very specific tasks without much engineering at all. So we instead took like the optimized infrastructure that we sort of had and built Codium, the product, uh, because we realized a lot of the value was going to be if we actually built applications and applications were sort of missing. One interesting insight is all of us were very early users of products like GitHub Copilot. And we believed that Copilot was just the beginning of sort of what generative AI could do for software development. And we thought there was a lot left than just auto-completing code. And that's sort of where Codium came from. Awesome. So... It sounds like it was still kind of linear in the sense that you took a lot of the infrastructure work that you've done to build something that was more usable at the app layer. But can you talk a little about like why go after a market that does already have some like really, really big players and maybe what the biggest difference is that a user would find using Codium? Yeah. So I think the main reason we felt that this was potentially reasonable is a lot of the companies we were serving in the deep learning space we kind of felt that like the specific engineers and the people that were going to be working on that were not going to be working on you know deep learning you know infrastructure or the machine learning engineers we were selling to that organization or group of people wasn't going to continue growing nearly as much with the advent of generative AI. So it was just a sense of by middle of last year, everyone was asking us, can we deploy transformer models? It wasn't a question of you know these open source models. I guess at the time GPTJ and I guess what 
the, the strange thing we realized when we were serving these companies was a lot of companies don't really have the core competency to go out. Even if we were like, hey, go out and serve GPTJ, which is this, you know, six billion parameter model that was kind of its closest comparison is Curie from OpenAI. Uh, we realized that even if we did go and do that, there was so much more work the company needed to do to wrap it into an actual application. And OpenAI solves a lot of those problems, right? Like, let me give you an example here. Like Jasper is a very, very, you know, successful company now. And at the time, you know, we could just go out and serve GPTJ for Jasper, but that wouldn't solve all their problems. Like they, they need to make the model really good for their application. And we'd be solving like a very small piece of their problem. So we felt like a lot of the problems that were left were actually building the end-to-end -end application rather than maybe the point part of the solution. Maybe the right way I, I thought about it was, you know, it genuinely felt that generative AI was in the early stages of the internet where the greatest sort of outcomes came to companies like Google and Amazon, not people that made like web server infrastructure. It so happened to be the case that Google and Amazon had the best web server infrastructure because their scale was massive. But it wasn't the case that the person that just made the best web server was the best positioned, if that makes sense. Yeah, actually, that has been one of the sentiment I've been hearing and talking to other investors are describing what will actually win this space. But I guess the connection from Exa function to Codium, I think from the infra to app, that concept, I can definitely can see where it comes from. But why coding? Though? Like you could yeah. pick Jasper, you could pick Midjourney type. Yeah, there's, yeah, I guess there's that's a thousand a, things a though. So I'm not sure why that particular. Yeah. We think obviously software development is like a massive market. Like that's obviously like a nice thing for us to say, but maybe more generically speaking, like us as a team, we want to work on things that like we are very passionate about, right? Like we were all like early adopters of Copilot the day the preview came out, right? Like this was not a thing where like we randomly just stumbled onto it. We were excited about the technology very early on. And in fact, actually some of the early customers that we, that we had at Exafunction outside of the autonomous vehicle space were in the generative AI space. They were companies that were trying to use these open source models to run generative technology. And sort of we had a front seat into seeing what companies could do here. And I guess when it comes to things like images, I have a lot of respect for people like the Midjourney team and stuff like that. That's just not something like as a team, we're nearly as passionate about. Like just this is maybe the real honest truth. In the last like, you know, four months, I haven't really done like text to image. Like this is not something like I care to do, but I use Codium like all the time still. Right. So this is more of a thing of like, as a team, we were able to build a product for ourselves first and foremost, which allowed us to ship the product really, really quickly. And it, it's a super ambitious goal too, going after such a big market, but then also where I would argue that probably Copilot is the most successful from like an enterprise use case perspective. And it's so hypey right now. Can you talk a bit about your process for saying, okay, GitHub has this huge install base. They're going to have like an advantage there, but we see gaps with these types of users. And I know you talk a lot about security on your site. So I don't know if that's part of the, okay, we're going to go after certain security conscious users. Like what was kind of your thought process and like, who'd you talk to? What was your like learning? I think when we started, we started with the premise of like, there's a lot more in software engineering than just auto-completing code. Like for instance, Developers spend a lot of time searching for code. They spend a lot of time executing and debugging code. Uh, they spend a lot of time reviewing code, writing PRs. There's a, a massive set of things that developers sort of do. And, you know, I think if we just saw what Copal was doing today and you're we like, that's it, we didn't think that was the case. So we started with, why don't we just try and build something useful to start with? And what we did was fairly ambitious in the start. We said we'd give away what Copilot had entirely for free. And we have, we've basically done that. We now have hundreds of thousands of users using the product. 
They use the product entirely for free, no limits at all. And we had to do a lot of weird stuff, by the way, to make that happen in the beginning on the infra side, which has also enabled us to, to make strategic moves on the enterprise side as well, which I can go into. But yeah, like we need a very, very optimized stack right now. Just to give you a sense of like the scale of what we're doing for Codium, like just the autocomplete side of it, we process over 10 billion tokens of code a day, which is like one of the largest LLM applications in the world already right now. So we process more than a billion lines of code like a day, and we generate millions of lines of code for our users every day. It's just a crazy mind-boggling number. And we've had to manage this infrastructure entirely ourselves. And this is where like some of the, the fact that we were like an optimized you know, inference infrastructure company came into play that we were able to like flip the switch really, really quickly on this and ship product and grow the install base like actually really, really quickly and scale it. To your question specifically about like, where do we see the differentiation happening? It's like already really, really massive. I can go into some details here, but like, for instance, we actually just launched actually very recently to enterprises, a notion of fine tuning on your code base. So this actually means, you know, we're obviously giving them the security wins right now, GitHub, Copilot is like entirely a SaaS offering. A lot of companies don't want to send their code outside of the company, like at all. And you can actually see this by GitHub's a very popular product, but most of GitHub's enterprise use cases are actually GitHub Enterprise, which is a self-hosted offering. Not to mention there are multiple large SEMs that where majority of their install base and revenue comes from self-hosted offerings. So like, for instance, Bitbucket and GitLab, very few, very little chunk of their revenue is actually coming from the managed version of the of the offering because you don't have like a Walmart willing to like send their code outside of the company. It's like actually core IP to the company. So we were able to do multiple things. Like obviously this, not everything was entirely planned, but because we had an optimized infrastructure stack, we're able to very efficiently self-host the offering within a company. And not only that, instead of it just being, we give you security wins, we're able to fine tune the model on all the code within a company. If you look at a product like Copilot, the amount of context that the product takes is 150 lines of code per generation. Imagine that versus like an enterprise code base, it's 10 million lines of code, 20 million lines of code. It's like many, many orders of magnitude difference in terms of the total size of context. So we've made strategic investments here that have already, and we just released a blog post here about how we outperform Copilot on even open source repositories like Langchain by just doing fine tuning. So there's actually a lot of places where we've already started to differentiate and provide a superior offering. Actually. So maybe talk about, because I know that the fine tuning message, just reading your content blog post, it didn't really come until like more recent, right? When you started to launch maybe October last year is we're like, Hey, we're going after the space. We believe we have an infra paired with a model approach that we can able to win in this space. So let me talk about how did you approach building this and marketing this when Copilot is already out there, right? So I guess the idea of out marketing is probably a little hard. What is their strategy here at the beginning? We actually did no marketing at all. Like all of our growth has been like word of mouth for the most part. So it's basically like, and not only that, all of our growth is from people that used to use Copilot, like so far. We've we've not tapped into the people that have never heard of generative AI. We're startup in the end. So we basically said, hey, more people are going to use the product if the quality is good. So we've actually seen as we've improved the product, and there are like small ways that we've made improvements even beyond what Copilot has that have improved our retention overall as a product. Like for instance, this probably sounds kind of dumb, but like these models, and this was not the case for open source models for a while, they need to do this thing called filling in the middle. This is like getting into like a little bit of like technical details here. But like when you write code, it's not just like, you know, writing marketing content where it's just like, oh, I'm going to write the next paragraph. It's like, I already have rich context before and after the cursor. How do I fill in the code properly? 
And like, that is like within the line, that's at the end of the line at the beginning of a block. And we optimized for a model that could fill in the middle, like extremely well. And we were actually able to ship that and deploy it even before Copilot did. And now we actually do autocompletes in places Copilot doesn't even do right now. And it's kind of interesting where we were able to, I guess, improve the product heavily in a sort of short period of time. And in the process of doing that, because we have such a large user base, we had a lot of enterprises that just reached out to us. So much so that right now we have more enterprises than we can even handle that want to use the product internally because they just want the benefit of a self-hosted offering, but also that something that like truly understands their code. So not everything was like totally planned out, I will say, but we just genuinely believed if we built a product that was like net very useful and reduced the barrier to trying the product and our goal was only to improve it, we would get somewhere. And I guess that was like a little bit of a leap of faith for us. Yeah, it's super interesting because you can almost look at the having a GitHub Copilot like competitor as beneficial in some ways because everybody now understands from a marketing standpoint what this type of tool does. So if you can say like, oh yes, but we are for customers that want a self-hosted option or we have X like feature differentiation, like they've actually done a lot to just carve out this market understanding. I want to kind of go back because this is not that uncommon of a founder journey to start down one path, discover that there might be a bigger market opportunity, and then kind of shift focus. How did you actually go at doing that? Especially given that like you'd raised money, you like had a lot of announcements around exit function. Like, how did you actually go about doing that? Because I imagine like you had the idea, then you maybe had to think about it, work with your team, work with your investors. Like, what is that process like for a founder? I think for us, the main process was. This is like a, a very strange thing for us to say, but as a startup, we're like a heat seeking missile at any given point. And uh, it's like one of those things where we're like a group of people that's like extremely hardworking, but you don't get an award for working on the thing that you don't believe is going to be the largest thing. I think there's a sense of like psychological safety that you get from like, oh, I got to keep doing the same thing. Because even more than that, like as a startup doing infrastructure, we were like quite successful. Like most startups don't manage like, you know, 10,000 plus GPUs with a very small team. This is like not a thing most startups do. So there were a lot of signals that that was going to be the case, but we just couldn't lie to ourselves and say that generative AI was not going to be massive. It was too hard for us not to see. So we started with the approach of like, could we build an application on top of our infrastructure that was like valuable? Was that genuinely possible for us as a team? Luckily, we had all the building blocks. So it wasn't like a thing where, you know, there's a lot of startups that are like, hey, I'm going to change the world and I'm going to build this thing and go up into a hole. And then we like started working on it and shipped within three months, Right. And then had like a little more general announcement in like beginning of the year this year. So it wasn't a thing where like we went into a hole and like did stuff for a while. We like ship continuously ship improvements extremely quickly. So as long as we were able to get that signal fast and face reality very quickly, it was not that scary. I don't know if that makes sense. Like we had very clear points of like, is this thing working or not? Which is quite different than probably most other products. Like we have real usage and hundreds of thousands of users using the product every day. We have like real KPIs as a product. So that made it a lot simpler. It probably would have been a significantly harder transition if we worked on another thing where it's just like, hey, we're going to build infrastructure for a futuristic application that we don't know has value. Yeah, but I guess it's also, whenever people are building infrastructure products and companies, you develop, of course, is still very technical and you have a technical audience, but the mindset of the team and also the way you sell that kind of product is so different, right? You're usually engaging with a team looking at you as a platform, right? I need to be able to figure out how you deliver SLAs. I'm going to figure out how you actually deliver roadmaps. And when it comes to apps though, right? It's like this iterative style of constant improvements and picking 
how are you going to able to make a massive amount of users happy, which is so much more noisier than, you know, your infrastructure, maybe I'm selling to five or 10 or some low number of customers per year. Was a natural transition, even in that motion, like basically selling a platform team to an app style, almost like a consumer enterprise jump in some level? Like, is there any learnings you have to readjust on the company side? Or this is just like, this is pretty smooth sailing. I think there are, there are. I think the interesting thing about that is like results happen like a lot faster. I know you're saying that it's like very noisy, but like, actually it's, it's kind of interesting. We can very easily today, just like as a notion of the product, because we've amassed such a large user base so far, ship a model. And then within hours, we know if it's better because like we literally look at the acceptance rate before and after, like, what is it actually doing within a short period of time? We can truly run a massive AB test on millions of completions within hours right now. So there's like this crazy thing where we can learn really quickly, but it is a mentality shift actually in that there's more urgency when you deploy a feature to just see what you actually look at what changes and you can perceive value extremely quickly. But at the same time, we still have like all the same problems of like when we're working with a large enterprise right now in let's say like a government adjacent space, then, hey, like, you know, we still have to go through the same processes of like explaining what the roadmap looks like. What is the future going to look like? Is this actually the team that is going to like continue to build for the future? And all of those things, we still need to answer all those questions. And how do you figure out what to prioritize on roadmap, especially given so many of your users either are or were co-pilot users, where I imagine you get auto requests if they have any new feature release. It's like, oh, hey, can you guys come out with this too? But then you also have your own roadmap. Like, what's your roadmap philosophy and process? We have a lot of respect for the co-pilot product and the team, but just to be really open, like the co-pilot product, what is like available over the last like year and a half or even two years has not changed materially. I think they had this whole announcement called Copilot X, which was like an announcement that has not resulted in any features getting shipped over the last like four months. I mean, that's like something I think you can better do as like a large company because you don't need to ship as frequently and still there's like some credibility. But like, I think for us right now, we don't want to be like nearly as much like competition focused because yeah, I don't know what to say in terms of like the space is so large, but also like we're shipping significantly faster. For instance, they have like a chat feature in beta we have code base over chat that was available like a month ago at this point, right? And it's actually like able to use embedding search on your entire code base and actually like kind of answer questions. So I think our point is like, we just got to keep shipping features that people use all the time and generate a ton of value from. One thing that makes this really hard, by the way, like it takes a lot of restraint is when you build features, and maybe this answers your question more clearly, uh, Tim, is when you build features in a space that's rapidly evolving, there's a lot of noise, right? Like if you go on Twitter, you can just see like, Maybe like three months ago, everyone was talking about agents. Now you are auto GPT and now maybe no one is talking about it. And like, yeah, like at that time we could have made a decision. Hey, we got to like build everything on auto GPT. Probably in reality, that would have been a mistake, despite the fact that a lot of people were talking about it. So it does take some amount of like, I guess, restraint to decide if a feature is like net positive and net helpful, which is like not a very easy thing to do. I'll give you like one other example of this. I think Copilot had like a feature of like, we will generate PR summaries or something along those lines. It was like a very exciting feature if it worked. And we tried the feature out and very quickly, it was starting to write like incorrect results for the PR summary. It was trying to like miss a bunch of details about the PR. And slowly we just stopped using it. We just stopped using it and stopped trusting it. And it's like, this is a very, an exciting feature in theory, but the technology is just not there yet. So it's actually like a very interesting thing where like when you're working on something where the technology is constantly changing, you have to be a realist while being an optimist. 
Because if you're only a realist and you're not an optimist, you'll never build for what the future is. But if you're just an optimist, you'll just be building for whatever people tell you is like very exciting, despite the fact that it's not feasible. And I think we ran into this trap when I was at Neuro working on autonomous vehicles, where realistically the tech just wasn't fully there yet. But we were trying to build it despite the fact that the tech wasn't there yet. So so maybe related to that question, because I'm, I'm very intrigued by this, this sort of like way of figuring out what to build next. Because you mentioned about shipping models, right? Shipping models isn't like, I'll ship a model today and I'll ship another one tomorrow. Like you could. You can technically fine tune something really quickly. But as we all know, like with these massive amount of code bases, with the massive amount of things that are happening, models could take months or weeks to figure out to deliver potentially, right? So there's a, like, Probably a lot of trade-offs between small incremental changes versus pretty long big changes. Like, okay, this model no longer works. Let's go research some LLM futuristic kind of thingy. And, and that might take a long-term bets or long-term change. Do you view yourself needing to figure out some of the trade-offs here? Like, let's just do small changes that we can quickly bets and worry about some other futuristic because this is good enough. Or maybe there is a mode where let's take one big long bets and a bunch of small ones. Is that how you guys think about it? I'm just very curious, how do you able to prioritize time versus outputs? We talk about this a lot internally, actually, as a company, what you just said, this was like a fantastic, the answer is like, we don't know entirely. Like when we bet on something, we don't completely know. That's actually the biggest thing that keeps us up at night, which is like our advantage here is like, we can actually move extremely quickly. If we believe something is very valuable, we can move extremely quickly in that direction. The question is, is that direction the right direction is always the big question. The thing we will lose on if we actually do is this thing that in my mind, what a big company is really good at, which is build a ton of features. So have like feature bloat, build in a bunch of directions because that's like the place a startup loses. A startup cannot build, out-iterate a big company at building a hundred features. What it can out-iterate a big company at is a handful of features, maybe even one feature, and it, all it does is it keeps investing over and over and over into that feature. So in my mind, let me maybe give you a classic example here. Let's say we were just like, oh, we're going to generate a PR. And we start playing around with GPT-4 and generate a PR. Realistically, that's not going to happen now. We have enterprises that use the product that have you know code bases that are 50 million lines of code. And we can build that. We could totally build that. And Copilot could, you know, the GitHub team could try and build that. But we're going to lose that. We're going to lose that because the technology is not there yet. And we as a startup would have invested a lot of time and time is a precious resource into something where like we didn't net anything right now. But what we can do, which is, you know, it doesn't sound as sexy, is we can build products that are valuable today that build towards a future that does put us in a position where we're the most intelligent AI assistant out there. So an interesting result of this is even if agents today are not like the most valuable thing in terms of like it's going to generate a commit. What happens if slowly we start to, you know, execute tests in the background for the user, even without telling them? And instead of like showing to the user that we did, we take the context of that and we can shove that into our own chat or autocomplete and slowly autocomplete results look better. So this is a great type of investment because it's like, hey, you know, we're building to the future where an agent is like really valuable. But at the same time, we're not completely dead if the system doesn't work today. And you need to make these kind of strategic bets that give you that potential 10x outcome in the future. But along the way, as you're iterating, you're getting a smoother and smoother process and a much better product. I don't know if that was like the most clear thing, but like just my thought process on like how we build features internally, like it can't be these one-off features that are 10% improvements because if they're just one-off and 10% in one axis, that will just not add up to a lot. So 
we cannot do these, like, I think super incremental improvements. Like that's not the way, you know, a 10X happens. I guess I learned a lot about this, you know, in the autonomous vehicle space too, which is, it's a little bit of a mess, honestly, like how development should be happening in those industries. So. Yeah. It's amazing. Just like your thought process and how you're iterating on like delivering value to users. I did want to make sure you talked about the open source extensions and aspects. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, I can actually talk about open source in general, like why it's like so critical, I guess, in the generative AI space as a whole. So maybe first of all, for us, Podium is a product that we want to be able to run anywhere a developer is. We're under no illusions that a developer is going to change their IDE or entirely for a new product. Products like VS Code have a lot of developers on them, but so does JetBrains, so does Vim, so does Emacs. And getting a person that's using Vim or Emacs or Visual Studio to then just go to Visual Studio code is basically impossible. Especially for tools like Visual Studio, it's the best developer tool for Windows development. And Windows developers are like a majority of developers out there, despite the fact that I think most people in Silicon Valley don't develop for Windows. So it's like an interesting thing that we learned along the way while building this product, that there's way more developers of different kinds than we even anticipated. So because of that, what we decided to do is like make the core product, which is like the language server API for us, which is what talks to our service, that is an open interface. And what that allowed us to do is have the open source kind of contribute to different kinds of IDs. So an example of this is we had a Sublime text package that's going to be open source. We have an Emacs extension that's entirely open source. We get contributions. We have a Vim extension that's entirely open source. We have so many users that want to use the product everywhere that we've taken the approach of like open source is going to be the right way for us to get the product out to the most developers, which was a, honestly a great bet for us internally. And that has like grown our user base materially because also more developers using the product on Vim, those people tell their friends. And even if those friends are like VS Code users, that's great for us too, if that makes sense. So that's been like a massive improvement for us and how the open source has been amazing. The open source to actually able to get into everybody's tools is very important because people need to be looking at what you're actually adding to Emacs event, right? It's pretty open, most of these tools that you need to be open anyways. Is there a thought process around also leveraging open source? Because I believe everybody start the code, the model through the open source code bases as well, right? And I think Given you already have a lot of users, they're giving you feedback. Probably you already have a way to have this flywheel of continuing making your improvements. But I'm always curious because open source still is a very large initiatives and efforts of people building very specific products and projects. Is there a particular open source strategy or partnership that can help you maybe leverage to maybe use Codium in the open source projects developing or and maybe some other special methods to help either on the marketing or the product side to make you move faster. Is there some yeah. kind of thought process there too? Or We've probably gone overboard here in some ways. Like our individual product is entirely free if you're an open source developer, but even more so if you're even a commercial developer, you can use the product entirely free. For us, like we just want to get the product out to as many people as possible. But maybe one clear thing I can say about the open source, a clear partnership, I don't know of like, the most clear one that we've sort of done, but the open source has been like crazy impactful for, I will say like just generative AI in general. It's probably not something that I think people think about very deeply, but let me just give you a key example. I'm not sure if this is like super interesting or relevant to the question you asked, but Llama was a massive model, right? It was like a very important model. It was like a model that was like 66 billion parameters trained on like 1.4 trillion tokens. So it was like a chinchilla optimal, you know, large model. But the bigger thing that came out of that was there's actually massive subreddits called like local llama. I don't know if you've heard of this subreddit, but it's just like people tinkering with these models. 
And the very interesting aspect of this was it got the access of like iterating on generative AI models out to like, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, when in fact, it was like hundreds of people in these large companies, right? Like OpenAI is like, I don't know, like hundreds of developers working on this. And they were able to find like interesting things that no one was really trying. Like, I'll give you an example of something quite interesting. Laura was something that kind of, even though it was something that was published a couple of years ago, the idea of a parameter efficient fine tuning. So what that means is you have like a model and you can actually like fine tune it by adding these kind of like layers in these transformer blocks was a very novel idea. And because of that, people were able to make like chats with personalities and just random things. And no one would have been able to find these things out. And I think the interesting aspect of open source has been open source is probably going to unlock a lot of new ideas. Even if open source doesn't have nearly as much compute, the ideas coming from open source are probably going to be massive. So I think that's probably where I think open source is going to be like extremely helpful to us too. And we'd love to figure out some way of contributing back in some capacity, but just the explosion of ideas in the generative AI space, probably a lot of them are going to come from open source. I want to talk a bit about the product. And I was like spending some time looking at you have very, very happy users and a lot of just like great momentum around the company. But I imagine there's some times and use cases where it just doesn't work properly, or you have users who are trying to work it in like a way that it's just not properly trained for it. Like, how do you manage user expectations around that? Where you're like, hey, use it for this, don't use it for this. If you use it for this, you might not be happy. How do you constrain while also being super broad? So one of these things about these large language models that's like amazing, that helps us a ton, is it's not like heuristic based. So like, if you were to build like a developer tool for like, you know, let's say like five years ago, these systems look very different than what they look like today. So I actually think it's actually advantageous that we started now versus like, you know, let's say like five, 10 years ago, because the way these tools look like back then, let's say I had to write a piece of code for C++ or I had to write a piece of code for JavaScript. I needed to write like a crazy amount of like code just to parse and analyze and, you know, kind of figure out how a C++ code base works versus a JavaScript code base works. And these are like extremely different pieces of code. So what that meant is you needed to implement a ton of heuristics for C++, a ton of heuristics for JavaScript, right? So because of that, it's extremely hard and unscalable to sort of build a product that is keeps everyone happy. One of the nice things about solutions now is these large language models learn generically about code uh, in a way where like, it's not like the C++ being good is like directly correlated with, hey, we invested way more time in C++ versus JavaScript. So there's a benefit there where these models getting better is like a bar raiser across the board, which is like a fantastic outcome. It's like, it comes back to like what I was telling Tim, which is like, these are investments where if you make an investment in one place, it's going to improve the product across the board. It's not like a 5% improvement for 2% of users. But that being said, there are still problems with these models. Like they will hallucinate. They will generate long suggestions that are annoying. And we're obviously trying to make that better by tuning our acceptance rate, figuring out what happy users look like and all this other stuff. But in the meantime, there is a notion of like education of, we got to tell them, hey, these models can be wrong. They don't replace developers as a whole. And like, we have to like make that extremely clear. Developers aren't going to go away anytime soon. So at best, these are tools that need, like you're the manager of these tools. And our goal is to make them the least annoying and maximally helpful while being least annoying. So I'm actually really intrigued about you're talking about, because we definitely know LLM has gone into this space, changed a lot of the game. And that's why we see the huge spring of these, these companies. 
But of course, what everybody is trying to figure out now is what's coming next, right? You often hear in every single podcast and every single content, what's going to be the next? Is Transformers going to eventually be replaced by something else? You know, is some crazy million tokens will be will be the new way, right? There's always something pushing boundaries and something that's changing the game potentially. And I have no clue what really is going to happen. Do you have some bets you are taking or really very optimistic about? Like this could be even what we want to be betting on. Is it agents? Sounds like it might be. But is there any other particular large AI sort of big transformation that you're looking for that we're closer than we think of being able to actually change the default approach? I'm going to try to take that in pieces. So the first thing is, are we going to bet on a new model architecture that's not Transformers? Unfortunately, I don't think we have the funding to sort of do that. And that's a massive distraction to us if we're like a product company. Right. If we're building a product and we're, you know, building complicated infrastructure to that on top of that, if we were to like risk what kind of architectures work, I think that's a thing that like maybe Google figures out or a bunch of researchers figure out. Like, you know, there's a lot of researchers looking into this. Maybe there is a breakthrough there. I do believe that probably if I was a betting man, like five years from now, are transformers the exact architecture? Probably not. It seems like there will be like some innovation there for sure. And it's unclear to me, like what that's actually going to look like. I think for us, like we got to build on top of what works today. If I were to take like the risk of, hey, we're going to bet the farm on a new architecture and we're going to figure it out, that's probably like outside of our risk profile, basically. The second thing you said, which is kind of more feasible is like, you know, these ideas of longer context of what are some bets that we could make now that put us in a better position? I think what you said is long context is great. One interesting thing that sort of came out, I'm not sure if you saw this, there were some papers that came out about like kind of long context not being exactly what we think it is. Like these models can take in long context, but they kind of like don't attend to what's in the middle versus like what's at the beginning or end. So we believe that context is going to be important. I think in our mind, it isn't feasible to have a model that takes 1 million tokens as context. For many reasons, it's kind of cost prohibitive. Like, hey, like the cost does scale with the number of tokens that you put in. And also on top of that, latency is bad. So there's a very unique principle that we believe in, which is like, while the models aren't perfect, latency is actually extremely important, which is why autocomplete took off, actually. It was not because the model was like any smarter. It was because you gave it something where the correctability of the generation was very easy because the generation wasn't very long. So it wasn't annoying. Imagine if it autocompleted five files and like, you know, four of the files were wrong. I'd probably be pissed. I would not use the product anymore. So there was that aspect. It was like a very quick experience. Like it would generate it like at the basically speed of thought. And then maybe the, the third thing is the quality bar was good enough. I think the thing is like for us, long context is an interesting idea, but probably in my mind, that's not going to be where a lot of the wins come from. I think the two key aspects that are going to be massive are re retrieval augmentation is going to be massive. And then in conjunction with that, some notion of the model deeply understanding your code base in the form of fine tuning is going to be actually very important. And that's actually something we can already deliver to companies today. And we're probably one of the first companies that is actually doing this in a self-hosted way at scale for large enterprises. So those are like two bets that actually required us to build a lot of infrastructure to sort of even support that. These are not like just your know, turnkey solutions and there's no solution out there that can sort of do that right now. So that's maybe my take on things. Awesome. I mean, you've been through an incredible founder journey. I like love to hear for other founders building in the Gen AI space with the pace that it's moving at, like what have you learned so far over the past few years? Or like what do you wish someone told you a little bit earlier based on the experience that you've had? I think the big thing that I would sort of say is build a product that matters to people today. Like the biggest trap that I see is like, hey, this would be cool if it existed. And I think you can make a tweet and make a tweet that blows up. 
but ultimately like your users are going to try the product and if they try the product and it doesn't like actually seem like an important part of their workflow they're not going to use it anymore so like actually be very rigorous about that like is this a thing people are using every day if they are using it every day how long are they using it for how painful would it be if the product didn't exist right for your user we've gotten reports that if a user doesn't use codium they feel naked the next day like on a new laptop they straight up just do not know how to write code so it's like one of those things where it feels like you've lost like an arm and can you build that aspect today while also being future looking like yeah the technology is going to keep improving i think the biggest crop that we sort of had with av and this is like i think i talked about this a lot in the past we actually had systems that were fairly capable in like the mid 2015s but for it to solve like all the cases you know this is the crazy thing to think about nvidia hardware has gone like 40 or 50 times faster in the last like you know 7 or 8 years like if you looked at like a 10 1080 ti or whatever it had between 10 and 20 teraflops of compute okay now a 4090 has 660 teraflops of compute so there was this massive kind of like trend that where compute kept increasing and because of that that enabled a lot of new things but that also made it way harder to build a system that worked in 2015 and if you started working on it then all you did was you burned a lot of capital moving in the wrong direction so i guess the biggest thing is like try to build things that work and are valuable to people today and i think that's like table stakes i think for anything you build in this space yeah that's amazing to hear very last question how do people find and try to use codium like what are the best resources to follow you any latest thing you want to announce or anything you want to talk about on codium I think the the biggest thing is we don't like to think of ourselves as purely autocomplete we're like an entire toolkit now we have like natural language based search code base aware chat like one of the fastest autocomplete products out there you just go on our website we have a discord forum like now with like over i think around like 25,000 users on the discord alone so it's like a fairly you know vibrant community and feel free to use the product and let us know if it sucks i guess well thank you so much for joining us this was an awesome conversation and episode all right thanks a lot guys